Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this pre-show performance uh, to Madam Butterfly. My name's Sarah Lenton. I'd like you to join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. So, the line-up tonight is Martin Fitzpatrick at the piano, who's going to be conducting this evening's performance. So it's unbelievably good of him to join us at all. And once he's chatted to us, he will rush off to do all things conductors have to do before a show. Um, beside me, I have Leslie Downer, writer and journalist, and expert on loads of things Japanese. Ruth Knight, um, over there, who's a staff director. And in the middle, Mark Down, artistic director of Blind Summit, and the chap who knows about the puppets. So you're coming in um, towards the end. And I'd just like to start with the person who can't be here because he's dead, um, but is most important, that's uh, Puccini himself. There he is. And um, you never catch Puccini off guard. Uh, all his photos are the same. Well-dressed, imperious, totally in control of his image and his operas. Puccini didn't just compose his shows, he oversaw every aspect of their staging, the costumes, the action, and the lighting. The latter's very important because in every Puccini opera, there's a dawn scene. And his friends used to think it was because he was such a duck shooter, he was used to lying in the mud watching the dawn come up, and it sort of spoke to him. I think it's got a great deal more to do with the fact that they just learned how to do cross-fading at the beginning of the 20th century. In fact, if you just see the next slide, you can see um, there's a sort of sense of cross-fading going on at the back there. And a dawn, of course, happens in um, Matter Butterfly. Uh, Puccini loved the theatre. He loved all the mechanics of it and all the innovations of it. All his operas are based on plays, and Madame Butterfly is based on a play he saw in London called, surprisingly enough, Madame Butterfly. Um, this was in turn based on a real story told by an American missionary about a geisha, Miss Butterfly, who'd been notionally married, then deserted by an American sailor. She had his child, waited three years, and eventually committed suicide. It's a commonplace story, but its reality gives Butterfly its peculiar power. Not just because of the tragedy, but because the opera is rooted in a real clash between two cultures and presents us with some difficult facts about America and Japan. It's a beautiful and uncomfortable show. And I think the first thing I'd like to ask Martin is, to, to, can you tell us about this East and West um, aspects of the show? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, what's amazing, as Sarah says, that uh, Puccini really... Um, here we go. There we are. Um, uh, oversaw everything and he, his, um, his control of his material was immaculate and uh, as, as Sarah says the, the connection between East and West is there in the music and uh, his music is soaring and emotional and, uh, and a lot of uh, Eastern music is very controlled and disciplined and he somehow manages to combine these two together so um, the style of um, harmony that or modality that the the uh, eastern uh, music uses is called pentatonic and the easiest way to describe that is the five black notes of the piano and then if i if i play for example 
this is the music just after the entrance of Butterfly, where she goes, uh, uh, she's just sung a top D flat. You'll hear it, trust me. <laughs> um, and it goes like this. So that is predominantly using the five black notes of the piano. And uh, what uh, Puccini does is he turns it into something very different. So although it's the same tune, he makes it into a beautiful lyrical line where um, she talks about the decision she's made to go to the Christian missionary and change into a... Uh, and to convert to a Christian. And he goes... that's the same tune uh, just converted and it's uh, you'll you'll forget except I've told you that it's it's the same tune and the, it comes back a third time right at the end of act one uh, it comes at the end of the glorious love duet that the that Pinkerton and uh, Butterfly sing and it goes like this then What's amazing is the first time you hear it, where it goes, it's flute, bells, and harp, and it's very much take, trying to t sound like a, a small Japanese band. By the end of the piece, by the end of the act, it's got into lush, full Hollywood-style uh, orchestration. Uh, so he's managing to convert this Eastern-style writing and make it sound completely natural with the Western uh, style that he would normally write. So uh, he, even, that, he even took a genuine geisha song, which goes like this... Once again, it's dovetailed seamlessly in throughout the whole piece. So the first time that the, the, the mention of, the, even before she's on stage, um, Goro says, listen, do you hear the girls? The, this music comes. And then once again, that he, he's taking that idea and spinning it so, so that the first time that she talks to um, Sharpless, the consul, and Pinkerton. Um, uh, she talks about, there's no one who will admit they knew poverty at birth. Every beggar on the street will tell you he comes from noble lineage. And it goes... And what uh, the style of writing there, where it's very simple and people are just following the melodic line, heterophony. So it's a style, once again, of, of Eastern origin, 
um, where rather than using harmony, it's bare fifths. That's a very Eastern style, and yet we, 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 make, we don't notice it because such is Puccini's mastery of the writing. Wow. Uh, um, and uh, along with Butterfly's rather Oriental sound, presumably uh, Pinkerton um, is an Italian tenor straight, is he? I mean, it's... it's is well, he, he's yeah? an Italian-American tenor, so... Yes. Um, go on. Uh, uh, so, uh, <laughs> so he, he has a... His first aria is a, a rather um, self-satisfied one, mm. um, True. <laughs> uh, which, go, which in our translation by David Parry goes, The world's my oyster, like any roving Yankee, I thrive on enterprise, however risky. And it's a rather um, grandiose theme. <laughs> At the end of that piece, uh, he, he has um, what sounds like something r r rather uh, current for today's um, society, um, uh, a theme that you'll all know. America Forever, he sings. America Forever, and he holds a top B-flat, and boy, do you know it. <laughs> There's an interesting story. So um, f I don't know, Sarah, if you're going to talk about it. It wasn't a su pe uh, yes. butterfly. Wasn't a success yes, when it f when it uh, first happened. And um, Puccini revised it. There's one lovely little moment in Act Three that I'd just like to touch on. Um, he made he made Pinkerton more sympathetic. And there's a s song Adio Fiori Toisil, um, uh, um, which is. Uh, my, our refuge was full of peace, full of passion, full of joy, that he wrote for the revised version to make Pinkerton more sympathetic. Just at the end of that, there's a th theme that seems to come out of nowhere, which goes... And if you hear this... Because in the original version, his America Forever... had gone minor. So if you hear that theme, that's, um, that's the skewed version of America Forever, which, which, which the only bit that's left is this one little play out of, of the aria in Act 3. Goodness, I didn't know that. No, so I've never have told them that in a million years. <laughs> it, it, in, in the original version, it, yes. it, it's, it's hinted at and okay. then it takes on. Um, this is um, post-Wagner, and I know it's Italian opera, but do you feel the orchestration is, knows about Wagner? Is, is there a sense of... A, yes, I mean, Puccini was a, a master of, of orchestration. And as I say, he, once again, he was able to, to bring um, chamber-style things to moments, uh, writing, and then have the lush, full orchestra sound. Um, the end of Act One is a masterpiece of... of uh, writing for big sumptuous music and then suddenly he thins out and there's a very simple bit um, where um, uh, the in the middle of the big big love duet they have this very gentle bit which goes 
and that's a solo violin and, and um, strings very gently playing. And that's just come after, after you've had... Uh... So he can turn on a, on a sixpence from, from the big, lush, romantic writing into the chamber music writing. Uh, and those big voices that he demands, do they ride the orchestra or does he draw back to give them their, their solo line? Uh, he's... he's v as long as as long as the orchestra obey the dynamic markings, then, uh, then which is which is my job tonight, um, uh, uh, then it's very possible for the voices to be heard over the orchestra. Really? But uh, he, what what he is absolutely meticulous in everything he writes on the page, and if you do what he writes, it works. You see, he's director proof. And conductor-proof, isn't it's he? Why, right? It's yes. why his work is so frequently yes. performed. How wonderful. Um, could I just ask, is there one piece of the score you'd like them to really listen out for and take home with them tonight, as it were? Um, uh, oh, I mm. thought... Well, I've rather done it. I, I, oh, yes, I can tell you one other thing. That, uh, so, so there's what I call the Harry Kiry theme. Oh, yes. Um, so uh, when uh, they talk about um, uh, her father... There's a theme which goes. Which is the theme that highlights um, the, the uh, decision by her father to obey the, the order of the Mikado and kill himself. And I'd like them to notice how many times that comes in the. How marvellous. Thank you very much. There's Thank a peg you. to hang your listening on. Very good. Have a great show tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks so much Thank for coming. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, to get uh, the rest of us into play, um, Ruth, can you tell me, when did you first hear Butterfly? Um, well, Butterfly was actually the first opera I ever saw when I was 16 with my oh. grandma. <laughs> so it's really lovely to be working on it now, many years later. Marvellous. And Mark? Um, I think when we did this, oh. I, I, when I came to this, I knew the Malcolm McLaren single. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. About it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Leslie? Um, well, I wrote a book about the woman who was Puccini's model for Madame Butterfly. And up till then, I wasn't sure whether I liked opera. Okay. And then I, had to, then I thought, well, I'd better see Madame Butterfly. And I saw it and I thought, wow, this is amazing. There you are. So you've made a good choice tonight. Um, I'd like to talk to uh, Ruth about the production we're going to see. Can you tell us something about what the show looks like? Um, well, what's amazing about this production is that the influence of Japanese theatre is really, really striking um, right from the off. Um, so the very first image that we see is of two um, barely visible and yet omnipresent veiled figures who are um, Bunraku, who become um, very, very important throughout the piece. And they're never noticed by the other characters, but they are always there. Um, and they... Um, have two ropes at the side of the stage and they pull open Michael Levine's set, which is a beautiful black lacquer box. And from within emerges one of the most iconic images of the piece that we see in all of the marketing, um, which is uh, the dancer Ayano, um, oh, no, who is representing um, Chocho-san as a geisha, doing her beautiful fan dance initially in silhouette. Um, 
And then the piece goes on to have lots and lots of elements of kabuki theatre. Um, um, so go past the geishas and see what the next one is. <laughs> so yes. Um, yes. kabuki theatre, um, okay. I mean, we, the, the key element of kabuki in this piece is the costume. Um, a kabuki comes from a verb to mean out of the ordinary. Um, so um, in Japanese, it's roughly translatable as sort of avant-garde theatre. And so with all of the costumes and the style and the design of kabuki are very kind of big and um, bold. And so we really have that in the in Hang Fen's um, costume designs. Um, one thing I would say is definitely not kabuki about this show at all is um, the way that the performers are encouraged to act. Um, because Mingela and um, his wife, Carolyn Cho, who also directed the piece, um, really, really wanted the thoughts and feelings and emotions of Butterfly and the other characters to all be incredibly authentic. Um, and so, uh, and also, so because Mingela was a film director, so um, you'll find that there are lots of um, very big, bold, um, kabuki style images but actually the acting and the performances are very subtle and more film-like um, and more truthful which is very important in this production I think. How interesting could we just see the next slide Cameron just to see oh uh, yes oh they're there uh... yes these are Bunraku <laughs> yeah. or Bunraki sorry <laughs> um, we'll so you yes, can see that they're not the focus, but you, you always see them. They are always there. They move all of the scenery around. I mean, the, the set is this big box with um, screens being moved constantly to um, to show different um, different rooms. But uh, largely, I mean, the, the piece is just taking place in, in Butterfly's house, which yes, becomes her kind of glass cage. Yes. And, and here, perhaps, is an example of sort of ordinary opera interaction, is it not? Uh... Yeah, and I mean, I mean, so kabuki theatre, I suppose you could say, is actually m lends itself more to traditional opera because in opera, everything's heightened and we see sort of big grand gestures like, you know, you do in kabuki. However, this is different. Um, you'll notice that everything is a lot smaller. And although they're obviously butterflies um, emoting quite strongly to Sharpless, um, generally speaking, um, uh, it, it's... Uh, very subtle and yes. uh, yeah, and uh, Sharpless <laughs> always strikes me as the, uh, the, the humane character in this show. Do you, do you feel that? Um, yes, he's very passive, Sharpless. Isn't and, it? and actually, <laughs> Carolyn said something in an email to me, um, which is that if there is a villain in a piece, it's not Pinkerton, it's Sharpless. Really? Now, why? Because uh, Pinkerton is infected with this callousness of youth. Um, he is, yeah, he, his behavior is dreadful um and he's not a nice guy in many respects and yet but he's ignorant mm. sharpless isn't ignorant sharpless has uh, many opportunities to change the situation he has a letter for a long time that he doesn't read to butterfly um mm. but potentially for three months that he doesn't read to butterfly he's passive and potentially a coward actually a coward yes i wondered that i mean he, he because he's a baritone you believe him really don't you yes. they're nice guys baritones <laughs> on the whole and look at him sitting there being sweet to her yeah <laughs> um, yeah well, that's interesting and um did had you did you work with mingela no but we've been in close contact with with carol and his his wife um and um glenn the revival director didn't either but but we had lots of um, direction from her on, on the way she wanted the characterization okay. to be. And do you feel cinema is part of 
of this this piece? Absolutely, and and something that everybody will notice uh, very very clear cinematic images. I mean, I mentioned the start already, but the the, the piece is absolutely full of them, um, um, and uh, quite uh, there's a stillness to it which is quite cinematic as well. Um, mm. It's definitely not busy. Even in the chorus scene, it's not very busy. <laughs> I, I, I noticed the lights. That you've got very clever lights on the side of the stage, um, which go up and down by themselves, which I'm used to people holding a light and going like that, you know. I mean, is, is that part of the Minghella look, do you think? Is yeah, um, I mean, I think, from what I understand, uh, Michael Levine and Peter Mumford, who um, designed the, the lighting, um, wanted to, with Anthony Mangella, to create a set that looked like it was, looked like you were looking into a box. So it looked like you were looking into okay. um, the place where the butterflies kept. And so having the lights visible on the outside helps with that effect. It also helps us to light behind the screens from a purely practical perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Always like hearing that. Um, can you tell us, um, and this is just a one-liner really, what do you think of the heroine? Uh, have, we, have we got a character for her or is it an open character? I think it's an open character. I think it's really important that she's an open character. I mean, particularly when you have um, a predominantly Western cast. It's very, very important that we don't other butterfly. It's very important that we don't see her as this cartoonish, exotic Japanese woman. She's a, a complex character. She's a complex person. She's young, but she's also knowing. She's experienced a lot as a geisha. She's innocent. She's deluded. She's loving. She, she's an incredibly complex woman. And... Um, uh, yeah, and I think it would be a shame if we ended up being all Pinkertons and boxing her in. Okay. <laughs> Mark, do you like Butterfly herself as a character? Oh, uh, yes, I think so, yes. <laughs> yeah, I haven't really um, thought about it, whether I like her. Yeah, that's yes. a good question. Okay. I don't know. Um, um, I mean, she's a, I, I think she's, she's very much... A mother in this production, I think, yes. and certainly from my point of view, because I'm sort of managing the child. Yes. Um, so she's a sympathetic character. From and she is, but she's also an actress mother, I think. Oh, so I think you know because of the the geisha. Um, so she's a performer and a mother. That's how. I, so there's a how there's a conflict yes. in there, I think. Yes. Goodness. Um, now, Leslie, tell me, um, what do you think of Butterfly? Because here, here, you've, you've got the lead in there. She's described as a geisha. Tell us about that. Um, first of all, what do I think of Butterfly? Yes. Um, from this production, I thought she was rather strong, actually. Okay. Um, I was rather impressed with her. I thought she, um, as a geisha, she should not fall in love in the first place. I mean, that's number one in the geisha rule book. Okay. You get the man to fall in love with you, you do not fall in love. But so she commits this fatal flaw. Okay. But having made that decision, she then goes for it and she sticks with it. And she rejects Yamadori. Mm. Um, and she goes right through, she just follows that one course to the bitter end. So mm. I think from that point of view, she's a very strong character. Okay. And we've got um, a slide, I think, of a, a geisha. Could you just move on from that? Yes, there yes. we go. Could you, could you talk to us about geishas? So, um, the word geisha means artiste. Gay is arts and sha is person. Um, this is a woodblock print of a geisha. And the geisha were trained professionals. So they spent as much time learning their profession as a ballet dancer or an opera singer. Um, they were very highly trained artistes. And their trademark instrument was the shamisen, which is this instrument which is like a lute, I suppose. Um, with three strings, and it can either be played with a plectrum or played with the fingers. Um, 
So when Puccini was writing, they were at the absolute pinnacle um, of, their, of their time. There were like 80,000 geisha around Japan. They were like a normal part of, of society. And they were, they were celebrities. So they were like movie stars. Um, they were very oh, famous. Right. One of them, Sadiako, the one I write about, um, was actually the mistress of the prime minister. So we're not really looking at prostitution here. We're, we're talking courtesan, aren't we? We're looking, well, yeah, but we're looking also at people that, that um, can make a living by their arts. Okay. They, don't have to, um, they don't have to sell sex for a living. Okay. Um, but the, the point, in a way, is that Puccini didn't know anything about Japan. He, um, Puccini knew all about Japonism, okay. and he knew all about, you, as you know, I'm sure, Japonism was absolutely huge uh, in, in the West at the time. People's houses were full of screens and fans and pottery. People wore kimono. Um, and as I think Pinkerton says, um, Madame Butterfly was like a figure on a, on a fan. Mm -hmm. So Puccini didn't know what real Japanese were like. I should say one other thing, which is that geisha were also actresses. And they learned the same arts as the kabuki actors. They learned the same plays, but the kabuki actors were performers on the public stage and they were all men as in Shakespeare's England. So the mm. women's parts were played by men. And geisha played at private parties. So they were like parlor actresses. Oh. But they knew the same plays, they did the same dances, and they worked at the same level of professional uh, expertise. So just before we go on to the drama, because um, Puccini actually saw well, some we, Japanese plays. Could we go plays. back one? Could we just talk about the, the marriage between Butterfly mm. and Pinkerton at the top of the show? So. Um, when Western men first arrived in Japan, the first thing they wanted was Japanese women. And um, the shogun's government didn't want to let them anywhere near ordinary women, so they brought out geisha. And by the time Puccini was writing, this had become a completely sort of standard thing. So if you, were, if you went to Japan, you were probably a man, you were probably a seaman or a merchant, and you sailed into Yokohama and you arrived, you went to the customs house and you said, I'd like to set up a marriage, please. Um, and the customs official would then find a nice lady for you, um, maybe a geisha, maybe an ordinary girl, um, whom the Westerners called musume. You'd pay $20 a month on a renewing basis and both of you would know it was a completely financial arrangement. And you would also rent a little house and you'd also possibly rent a servant so as um, an American writer put it, you know, you could have the very happy life of a married man for the duration of time that you were in Japan. Mm -hmm. And when you came to leave, that was the end of that. Mm -hmm. It also meant you wouldn't catch any nasty diseases mm -hmm. if you had your little wife sort of tucked mm -hmm. away there. If one feels that Butterfly hasn't quite understood the nature of this contract in the opera. Um, she doesn't seem to have, no. does she? <laughs> <laughs> um, you see, uh, my, my feeling about Butterfly is that Puccini actually sees her as an Italian woman. Yes. And all this incredible passion, that's an Italian thing. Okay. So he's imagining, how would, what would an Italian woman be like? But most of the Japanese women that did this, they were quite poor. Um, they did it because they needed to do it. Um, and they were very down to earth. They knew exactly what they were getting themselves I into. I think so. Okay, although, of course, Puccini also felt he was catching the essence of Japan, did he not, when he, he started... Um he did say that. Yes, he did and, say and he, he wanted and he, to. And, yes. he, and he had seen this 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 drama. Could, could we just go oh. on to the the Japanese oh. theatre that Puccini saw? Because I think it feeds into oh Puccini. the Sadiaka yeah, rather yes, than Balasco. Yes, yes. Okay, so now we could have the next picture. Okay. okay. Um, so this is Sadiaka, 
And she was the star of the Japanese theatre troupe. Um, and when Puccini saw her on stage, she was at the absolute pinnacle of her success. They had traveled, they had toured um, America and Europe. They had performed in front of Edward, Prince of Wales, who became Edward VII. They performed at the Paris Expo. They went to, they performed in Germany. Um, and they were the first Japanese professional theater troupe to tour the West. And when they arrived in San Francisco in 1899, um, it was an all-male theater troupe, and Sadiaka was there as the leader's wife because they were Japanese, so they just thought, well, actors is all men. And then they discovered that, of course, American men weren't going to respond very well to men playing the parts of women. She was a geisha, so she knew how to act, she knew how to dance, and so she went on stage. And um, the critic, Max Beerbohm, said that she was more beautiful than the most beautiful Western actress, who was Sarah Bernhardt. Gosh. You can imagine what Sarah Bernhardt thought about that. That was um, a rare bit of treachery and, from yes, Max Beerbohm. Yes, he adored yes. Sarah Bernhardt. Good Lord. And, then, <laughs> and, and the critics also said that her death scene was also better than Sarah Bernhardt and better than anybody else and incredibly realistic. Goodness. Um, so should we, can we have yes, the next so, picture? Yes, so the sort of shows. Oh, so her instrument um, was the koto. Um, you'll see the chamisen at the back there. Whenever you see any picture with a chamisen in, it means the woman that you see there is a geisha. Mm -hmm. But the koto is this zither at the front. Yeah. That was Sadiaka's instrument. And the little piece of music that Martin played was her, her sort of trademark piece of music. Um, it was a very famous piece of music. And that was the very one that Puccini took to be Butterfly's mm -hmm. theme tune, if you like. And the, and the nature of the drama that Puccini okay. saw? We have the next, yeah. Yes. Okay. So um, their most famous drama was called The Geisha in the Night. They had lots of dramas. And um, what they did was they took Kabuki Theatre. Kabuki Theatre lasted from dawn till dusk. But they thought, well, Western audiences won't cope with that. So they cut it down to half an hour. Um, <laughs> and they then also, they, they, they thought, well, it's all in Japanese. They cut out the dialogue, nearly all the dialogue. Wow. They thought, so they had lots and lots of fighting, lots of gorgeous dancing, a few judo throws, um, and then her spectacular death scene. So this is the geisha in the night. Um, she is the geisha there. This one. Uh, in the, no, standing up. Um, oh, this one. That this one, one, yes. And to the left in the white is the man that she's in love with. This is Act One, who's having a kind of falling out with this character over there, with the, with the spiky hairstyle, who's the bad guy. So that's Act One. And the, the setting is the Yoshiwara pleasure quarters with lots of cherry blossom, which probably Puccini borrowed in that scene that has lots and lots of flowers. Yes, 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 indeed. But then everything goes pear-shaped because we could have the next picture. Um, so the geisha discovers that the man she's in love with is betrothed to another. Oh. And her rival, um, the fiancé, goes off and hides in a temple. And the monks will not let her in. So here she is performing the dance of the seven veils. It's not really, it's kind of... But you, she's casting off her layers of kimono to persuade the monks to let her into the temple so that she can bash her rival. Next picture, please. And here she is on the far side. Her hair has come loose. She's grabbed the hammer that you use to whack the temple bell. And she finds her rival and actually starts bashing her. Um, and then she gets pulled off the rival. And last picture. Yeah. Here, she keels over and in her lover's arms with her hair all wild, she dies. Oh. 
and said her face changes colour, her eyes roll up. It was said that the whole auditorium went kind of cold and everyone started shivering at the horror of it. It was the most realistic wow. death well, scene. Wow, well, no wonder it had an effect on Puccini. had ever it? seen. Yes, yes, yes. quite. So Puccini caught up with Sadiaco in Milan and saw her. She was there for four days. He wrote this all this in his diary and they performed three times a day. He tried to find an interpreter, couldn't, so he couldn't talk to her, but he saw all those 12 performances. And do you see Sadiaco in Butterfly? Oh, um, well, that was one of the things that I think he, he almost certainly borrowed. Okay. Um, so we have to look at what the Italian, how the Italian critics described Sadiaco. And they all, everybody's assumption, this is a bit hard, we have to take a step back in time. Everybody in the West assumed that non-Western people were primitive. So they actually wrote things like, this is amazing, this woman, you know, we know she's a savage, but she seems quite sophisticated, extraordinary. Um, and so they, they all described her performance. They didn't seem to spot that she was acting. And they said, oh, she's, she's so childlike, she's so naive, she's so innocent. These are all characters, of course, as an, of an innocent savage. And then, then she becomes savage. Um, and in stage directions to Madame Butterfly, Madame Butterfly is also infantile and so on. Oh, I see. Infantile, yes, yes, childlike, childlike smile, then turns on Goro with a savage cry. So oh, she yes. has oh, that's just marvelous. those well characteristics. Done. Um, just to finish, we, we actually have some pictures of Sadiaco not acting. Yes. And actually the next one I think is so Oh, good. but this is, yeah, Look at that's that. her. I mean, so there she's completely ordinary. She was a, a very sophisticated lady. Uh, yeah, how wonderful. <laughs> and the other thing was that they cut, that, that, that Puccini cut out the consulate scene. So he decided to cut the three-act uh, butterfly down to two. And the critics had said that Sadiaka's plays were, went, went to their dreadful end with terrible efficacy. Yes. And Puccini said, I want my play to go to its end with terrible oh, efficacy. efficacy. Uh, Excellent. Well, that's what you're going to see, however inauthentic. Um, but yeah. it's a terribly good opera. Now, the great um, surprise about this show mm. is the casting of Sorrow. Yes. Um, normally, he's supposed to be two, the, the, the Pinkerton and Butterfly's child. So either you have an unnaturally still child who's really a doll, or you have a stunted four-year-old. Um, but we have done something completely different. Mark, do introduce Sorrow for us, would you? Um, well, uh, Sorrow, you can see in the picture here, and he is actually... Um, Supposed to be warming up, but I think he might be here. Oh, is he, oh he's going to walk in. Yeah, out. here he is. Oh. Um, <laughs> come in. Come in. <laughs> so this is Sorrow, um, who is uh, actually a Bunraku-style puppet. I mean, it's not. I always get. I mean, getting quite a lot of trouble for saying he's Bunraku. Um, oh, really? Uh, because it's really not Bunraku. Bunraku is a very well-defined art form. Um, uh, what we've taken for it and been inspired by is that the puppets are operated by three people and that the aim of using three people to do this <laughs> is to create realism, um, as close to realistic movement as possible, um, which is one. what these three people... <laughs> are trying to do. He can be quite naughty, this puppet. Um, and the only note we ever get from the director is this, it's not all about the puppet. 
Um, but right no. now, I guess it is. But Mark <laughs> Mingella said when the show was new, the puppets are our only hope. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> I suspect he was joking, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. He didn't say that behind closed doors. <laughs> um, it was also his only worry. <laughs> oh, really? Um, so then what is your contribution here? You, 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 so... Uh, you're being <laughs> upstaged very badly, I think. <laughs> OK, guys, it's not all about the puppet. <laughs> um, so these are, let me introduce, shall I introduce you to the three puppeteers? This Please. Algis, um, who uh, is doing the head of the puppet and the left hand and stealing people's, uh, yeah, look, hold on to your wallets <laughs> and watches. Um, Algis has actually uh, come over from Lithuania where he performs the role of the head and has done it uh, in every production for 15 years. No, now. really. Um, I think I did the first one there and he took over the next show. Um, Connor, uh, uh, Connor is on the feet in the middle um, and you may not even have seen him. He is, um, he's actually six foot tall um, <laughs> but is able to squeeze himself into a very small space. And uh, Rayo is on the back and holding the back and the right hand. And they are um, working together. They're improvising together. Um, so although, they're, although the puppet has uh, been directed and has blocking and places he's got to go and things he's got to do, um, in order for it to seem natural, they are improvising together to achieve that blocking. And so it slightly varies every time. Um, and... Uh, and, and the idea is that the puppet, the, the, the boy, Sorrow, um, makes his decisions rather than, than the puppeteers. So the puppeteers sort of, uh, when it's going really well, they're basically following the puppet. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. Oh. <laughs> yes, well, he's and when it's going badly. Yes, he's, <laughs> he's certainly a toddler. And you can see on the lineup at the end, the puppet is part of the lineup as they take the curtain call. And by, that, by now, you, you believe the puppet uh, completely. In fact, you've probably believed him in about 30 seconds of his appearance on stage, don't you? Yeah, I, think, I think so. I mean, I, I, of course, I was in it to begin with, and I didn't see it. And um, I remember when I came to see it for the first time, after I'd cast... It must have been when I cast August. And, um, and, and I suddenly was faced with, with everything I'd read about it, which was, you know, it was controversial to begin with. And the opening moment, I think, is a, can be a bit of a shock. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, my God. And then, <laughs> and then settling down and thinking, oh. Okay. So even I had that. Yeah. Really? And I watched these things all day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, oh, obviously, puppets is you anyway, is it? The, the word? Uh, puppets is you. Is it? I mean, do you do other sorts of puppets? Yeah, we do a lot of... Well, yeah, this is what I yeah, do yeah, all exactly, the time. Exactly. Yes, yeah. Well, he, I mean, we've With lost Sorrow. He's gone. I, I hope he turns up on stage later on. <laughs> um, and uh, thinking about the show, Mark, is there anything in the show that you particularly love, that, that there's just one scene that, that absolutely gets you? Yeah, probably... Uh, uh, it's really difficult to choose. Um, I think... My favourite bit is the beginning of Act Three, it's, uh, with the birds. I really oh. love oh, the birds. You've got the, some wonderful birds. Yes. The birds are literally paper origami birds on the end of bamboos, um, and it's so simple that it it it's just beguiling that you can do that in. And the opera is is it's like sort of um, Hollywood minimalism. 
it's sort of, it's incredibly lush in its result, but it's made up of these incredibly simple things. And in fact, when this transferred to New York, um, they said, oh, we can do, we can make you much better birds. Oh. And they went and had birds made by, I can't the name now, but the person who made the puppets for the Lion King. And we turned up, and I was slightly mortified because we'd made these yeah. paper birds. But I sort of didn't know if I could say anything. Anyway, they brought in these things that probably cost thousands. And um, they looked horrible. <laughs> so then, and then we had a lot of meetings about what sort of paper to yep. use to make them back. Okay. And they were never as good, quite as good as the London ones. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Ruth, is there some moment in the show that... Well, I was thinking about this, and actually I was going to say the birds as oh, well, because yeah. <laughs> I love the birds. Your second favourite moment. <laughs> My second favourite moment, yeah, really nice music. Um, I love the humming chorus at the end of Act Two. It's yeah. just a really gorgeous moment and so heartbreaking if you know yeah. what's going to happen. Um, and, I, yeah, the realisation moment in Act Three uh, when she she's holding it together and then the point at which she actually collapses for the yes. first time, I think you can't not feel a pang yes. of intense... Uh, sympathy. <laughs> okay. So that is the opera, pure and simple, isn't it? Not. Yes. yes. And Leslie. Well, um, I, I was going to say the birds, but uh, I can't say that. Watch out for the um, birds. Yeah. I also like the, of course, the spectacular opening. Um, when we're sitting there and it's dark and then it becomes red, that yes. sort of cinematic thing as the redness increases yeah. and then the people come over the hill. Um, but I also love, I love the, the, the huge group of geisha that come in mm. because they're so stylized. Yes. I mean, there's no pretense that this is real Japanese costume. Yeah. And even the hair, I think, is made of paper, isn't it? Really? So I, I like that kind of, that, that stylization, which is very much a, sort of Japan, a characteristic of Japanese theatre. Oh, I see. So there's artifice as well as... Uh, realism in the acting. It's a very good mixture, is it not? Yeah, it's definitely yeah. stylized design with um, realistic acting. Amazing. <laughs> so grateful. Leslie, thank you so much. Mark and Ruth. Uh, excellent panel. I'm very grateful to them. Thank you. <laughs>